The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode number 246 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Our topic today is trustworthy, understandable, and useful information for family caregivers and patients. More and more, healthcare systems favor people being cared for at home. More and more, hospitals are pressured to shorten shorten hospital stays by getting patients home faster. And more and more, and the polls show this, people want to die at home. So more and more, this means that family caregivers are more and more involved in caring for their family members. Families in North America number around 100 million. As many as 45% of these families will at some time be involved with family caregiving for family members with serious illnesses. Family caregivers' sense of responsibility for caring for their family members is felt very strongly by many, many families, and especially in the ethnic, cultural, and immigrant communities, all of which means that family caregivers need help and especially the help of trustworthy, understandable, and useful information, all of which is why our topic today, trustworthy, understandable, and useful information for family caregivers and patients, is so important. To discuss it, our guests are Audrey Friedman and Dr. Margaret McCartney. Audrey is a radiation therapist, social worker, and educator. She currently leads the patient and family education programs across all four hospitals of the University Health Network in Toronto, Ontario. Um, She was recruited in 1999 by the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre to establish patient and family education as an organizational priority. And in 2004, she was appointed Provincial Head of Patient Education for Cancer Care Ontario with the goal of improving the quality of patient and family education across Ontario. She strives to ensure that patient and family education and services are accessible and meaningful to all, regardless of age, ethnicity, language, functional or health literacy, geography or disease. Today, she's recognized as a leader and innovator nationally and internationally for her work in the field. Margaret is a family doctor in Glasgow, Scotland. She's an author who writes for the British Medical Journal and for General Media. She broadcasts for the British Broadcasting Corporation's Radio 4 Inside Health program. Her main interests are evidence-based medicine, screening, risk, ethics, and uncertainty. 
and she's the author of a book a publication called the patient paradox why sexed up medicine is bad for your health and she has a blog www.margaretmccartney.com so welcome to the show audrey and margaret thank you thank, thank you for having me now start with you audrey please tell us more about more about your career and your experience with family caregiving well, my experience as a radiation therapist, social worker, and currently as the director of patient and family education and survivorship, um, all have a very significant family caregiver focus. Um, I've also had several firsthand experiences being a family caregiver. So particularly as a social worker, social workers work almost always with families and family caregivers as we saw the family system as integral to meeting any individual issue. And social worker also is a profession that's concerned with helping individuals, families, groups, and communities enhance their individual and collective well-being. So in my work as a social worker, I was very concerned with individuals and their personal problems, but also with the family uh, dynamics and, uh, and the impact on the family, but also with broader social issues such as poverty, unemployment, and in the, the work that I did, domestic violence. Um, as a social worker, I wanted to help these people develop their skills and their ability to use their own resources and those of the community to resolve problems. Now, as the Director of Patient and Family Education and Survivorship at UHN, and the head of patient and family education at Cancer Care Ontario. And just uh, when I say family, we define family as family caregivers. That would include um, people who provide care to partners, parents, children, grandparents, brothers, sisters, cousins, and includes their friends, neighbors, and coworkers. Um, so I, I may say family, but I do mean family caregivers. The focus of my work currently is to develop programs for patients and families, for staff training that always includes the patient and family caregiver. We know that the family caregiver is often the advocate for the patient, the person who can best hear and process the information when the patient is overwhelmed or too sick. And we know that the family caregiver is often the information seeker and surrogate or the proxy for decision making. We also know that most often the family caregiver is the person that needs to feel empowered, skilled and competent in helping the patient at home and actually allowing the patient to remain at home. Right. No, I'm oh, Audrey, I'm just going to stop you there. No problem. Uh, because I want to um, just carry on, but at the same time, I'm going to ask you again later on about your work. So, Margaret, same question for you. Please tell us more about your career and your experience with family caregiving. Well, I suppose there's sort of two strands to it. So one would be in my day-to-day -day practice as a general practitioner where you're every day trying to help people make good decisions about their health choices. Sometimes it's quite easy to make those decisions, other times it's quite complex. And there are huge challenges for a GP working within time limitations in terms of how to best give information for people when the actual information itself might be deeply uncertain. So that's one strand. The second strand would be in my work as a medical writer. Um, so part of that is the work of the BMG, the British Medical Journal, and the other part is for Radio 4 
And much of that work is around looking at the evidence about various health interventions and trying to make sense of it. What are the pros, what are the cons, and how to help people make good informed choices about their health. And very often these are very difficult decisions to make, um, and they're made all the more difficult, but all the better, I think, when we're aware of just how uncertain the information often is and how choices can be good or bad to the same choice could be good or bad to the same person, depending on what their own values and wishes are. Right. Audrey, back to you. Please yeah. now tell us more about your work in information services provided by University Health Network, um, which, as I think we've said, is a major Canadian teaching hospital. Audrey? So at University Health Network, we ins- work to ensure that patients and families have the right information at the right time meeting their individual learning needs across the continuum of care. We also work on building capacity within the organization to ensure that the healthcare professionals have the right tools and competencies to engage patients and their family caregivers as partners in their care. Uh, We focus on consulting on best practices and resource development, so we have a consultation process with the clinical programs to create educational materials. We uh, do professional development for staff and outreach. Um, and we provide plain language um, and graphic arts consultation to help ensure that the materials that are developed are written in a way, an accessible way, that patients and family caregivers can understand um, and that it's useful information. We also conduct research and evaluation to make sure that our programs are effective and to ensure that they that patients can understand and use them effectively, and we're and looking at improving patient outcomes. Um, improve system efficiencies and self-management. Uh, from, a, from a creation of resource point of view, um, we've, we created about 1,000 uh, new brochures over the last five years. And just to tell you the volume is that we lent, uh, we lent about 300,000 or gave away 300,000 consumable pieces of material just last year. We had f- over 5,000 people attend our educational events and we did individual customized searches for patients or their family caregivers for over 6,000 um, interactions with a, with a librarian in our health sciences uh, patient libraries. We have four libraries um, and uh, for patients and family caregivers at UHN with set 25 satellite resources. Right. Now, I'm going to stop you again there because I want to go to Margaret, but as I say, we'll be talking more about the kind of work you do and the resources. Margaret, please tell us about your work as a family doctor and how it connects with what you wrote in your article in the British Medical Journal. Margaret? Yes. So one of my big issues um, in terms of time pressures is how to efficiently give people information. And quite often people want to defer making a choice about a health a health issue in, until they've got a bit more information, a bit more time to digest the information, maybe time to discuss um, what they want to do with family or friends. And one of the resources I love to use is um, online information, internet information, patient leaflets, all that kind of stuff. I adore having lots of that stuff to hand. But the problem is that it's often very inconsistent that some of it is quite poor quality um, and that very in many hospitals in the UK write their own information leaflets which vary quite differently um, between trust to trust. Some use um, 
companies to supply leaflets to them, and those kind of companies can supply more than one hospital. Or there can be um, hospitals which just individually, they've got a communications team who will seek to write their information themselves. So you've got quite a lot of duplication in those instances between a lot of hospitals that are essentially doing the same work but repeating it time, time on time. So one of the things I looked at for the article on the BMJ was just what's happening around the country. And there have been quite a lot of um, research papers already out there saying that we really have to get this tidied up because we're giving out a lot of different information to people. We're using different figures, different statistics, and they can't all be right. Um, we're giving even simple things like how long you should be off or off after an operation, really markedly different depending on which bit of the country you live in. And really we should have a lot more consistency, a lot more coherent standards, and a lot more sharing of good practice and good information. We've got lots of research out there about good decision-making and shared decision-making between patients and doctors. And there's a lot of really fantastic work that's shown, shown the way forward, really, with how we can communicate information well, give patients good and realistic information about uncertainty, and help people to make really good information. But sadly, that kind of information is only really available for a minority of health choices that people are faced with. And I suppose what I'd be really wanting is more of that, more of that very rich theme of work that's enabling us to sit down with people and make good choices based on readily digestible information that can be returned to by family and friends as well. We are going to take the break now because it's that time when we have to pay the rent. But I just want to say to both of you, what's emerging is that information for family caregivers and the people they're caring for, the patients, um, is obviously being taken very seriously. And so that's why this episode that we're doing is so important. So let's now take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guests are Audrey Friedman and Dr. Margaret McCartney. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We will be back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join Gary Ray with his co-host Linda Crater and other prestigious co-hosts as they show what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. 
On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on voiceamerica.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Audrey Friedman and Dr. Margaret McCartney. Our topic is trustworthy, understandable, and useful information for family caregivers and patients. Now let's talk about the information challenges, that is the challenges that family caregivers and patients experience with the information that they're given, provided with, or which they access. So Audrey, you first. What are the greatest information challenges faced by family caregivers caring for family members generally? Audrey? So the challenges in particular, a little bit of the population trend in Canada is that to know that in Canada and in particular in Toronto, we're dealing with a population um, that has a lot of diversity in terms of language and culture. We also have a lot of functional and health literacy issues. And um, the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care here um, is, is urging us to avoid health disparities between population groups. Um, We know from a study by Statistics Canada Canada that was released in September 2013 that 8 million Canadians, or 28% of the population, is uh, looking after people with long-term care uh, conditions or a disability or problem associated with, with aging. So this context is very challenging. From a family caregiver perspective, there are many informational challenges. For example, finding practical resources in the community to support them with, for example, home care, assistive devices, transportation, finances, and respite services. Family caregivers often struggle to find out what programs and services are available and how they can access support from a social worker, for example, in the community or in the hospital. I think another information challenge faced by family caregivers is that they experience high levels of stress and psychological distress. So knowing where and how to access mental and health counseling services to help them with their own emotional and mental health needs may be a significant challenge. But a very important underlying issue is the issue related to literacy and health literacy, which it really means the skills to get, understand, and use information to make good decisions about health. For family caregivers who may not have good health literacy skills themselves, they may limit, be limited in their ability to better take care of themselves and others. For example, to understand and follow instructions, read and understand health information and make decisions, and to make healthy lifestyle choices um, about health and exercise, and also to communicate their needs and the needs of the patient they are caring for to the healthcare team. Um, there's been some work in, in health, adult health literacy, and it found that more than one-third uh, in a patient education management study said more than one-third of caregivers had difficulty reading and understanding health-related information and directions. 
60% made errors when sorting medications into pill boxes. So for many Canadian patients and family caregivers, this poses a significant challenge in that they don't always have the health literacy skills to understand or to know how to use the information that they're getting. Placing right. patients now, at risk. Sorry. I'm going to stop you there because we're going to come back to that as well. Key, key points, though. Margaret, what are the greatest of the information challenges faced by patients? Or maybe putting that question in a different way. Margaret, what are the information challenges that your patients talk to you about? Margaret? Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you've just spoken about in terms of health literacy. It's an enormous issue, and our literacy skills are not often great when it comes to reading medical information, and it's possible to give the same information to patients in such a way that's written well or written badly that makes all the difference between comprehension and really absolute non-comprehension. Even when we look at things like the way that statistics are presented to us, it can be incredibly easy to use numbers to either frighten us or reassure us, depending on what way we want to to figure it around. For example, the difference between absolute risk, you know, what how many times in a thousand you might get a disease or disorder compared with what your chances are compared to something else. It's called relative risk. And it's incredibly easy, I think, for information to inadvertently sway people one way or the other. So what I'm always looking for is neutral information, information that's got lots of knowledge in it but doesn't necessarily dictate to the patient what it is that they have to do with that information. So that's really important. The other thing that I find very difficult often is accessing high-quality information, information that I know contains everything that a patient should know in that subject. But the problem is is often that I don't know how well that information has then been understood. So quite often it's a good idea for me or other healthcare professionals to meet up with patients or family members later on after there's been an initial exchange of information to come back and say, well, what did we understand from that? And to make sure that we've done a proper transfer of information where we're happy with the knowledge that we have. But unfortunately, I don't think that I do that as well as I should be doing that because it requires an awful lot of time and an awful lot of time from patients and their families as well. And sometimes the pace of decision-making can supersede that. Time that I often would like to prefer to have on my side to make better decisions. So I think that the challenges are enormous. But the problem is if we don't at least try and tackle them, we make them even bigger because we're ignoring the mountains, as it were. Right. And we're going to be talking about responding to those challenges in, in the next segment. Audrey, what are the greatest of the information challenges faced by family caregivers caring for adult family members living at home with illnesses for which medical care is necessary but it's not sufficient? Audrey? Well, I think this is a much more complex issue than informational needs. I would say more of of an educational challenge would be uh, related to chronic disease self-management and system management. We know that when people um, have specific acute care needs, they often uh, need information to prepare and adjust to their current situation or crisis. But for the management of chronic conditions, information, technical skills, and confidence are critical for patients and their family caregivers to help them effectively self-manage. We know that patients and family caregivers are managing more care in the community on their own with limited support from the formal health care providers. So care required 
is growing in complexity. People are experiencing more and more chronic diseases, often multiples ones at a time, and this can make self-management or caring for someone even more complicated. Um, in cancer, the statistics are that there's a prevalence, which means the people alive and living with cancers for the last 10 years is about 850 people, and these statistics suggest that cancer is increasingly being perceived as a chronic disease and certainly lots of end-of-life issues that arise with people that, that you know, uh, are not doing as well. With these in mind, we need to think, as in other illnesses that, chronic, that are chronic in nature, that there are increasing information and self-management needs. So this represents a significant challenge faced by patients and their family caregivers. Not only do they require you know, information, decision-making information, resources, or support, but they also need skills-based education. We call this therapeutic patient education, which is related not only to having information, but to having the knowledge, skills, and confidence to manage life with a chronic condition. Um, I think this is very challenging for the, for, the, um, for the people involved. I think the challenge of navigating the healthcare system is very complicated. Family caregivers, like people they care for, risk falling through the cracks when care is often transitioned from the hospital to the community, back to the hospital. And family caregivers need to be empowered to know how to advocate for themselves and for the people they are caring for in order to access the right information and support when they need it. Right. Now, Margaret, one of the greatest of the information challenges faced by family caregivers caring for children and adolescents living at home with illnesses for which medical care is necessary but insufficient. Margaret? That's a good question. And to be honest with you, I'm not that sure. I think it's really a, probably a better question asked of the families themselves, you know, where, where is the information that they lack? But the a big problem that I have with a lot of services for adolescents and children, certainly in the UK, is that because um, there's sometimes gaps in the services and people are working very hard to try and introduce more adolescent services, um, some clinics will start seeing children at the age of 12, 14, others 16. So quite often can be a gap or a perceived gap where children can really fall between the two stools of other children and adults. And I think that can make it very difficult as well, especially when a child has growing autonomy. So the child is no longer um, going to be treated to what the parents want for that child. The child's got their own rights and their own say more and more predominantly. You know, we always have to listen to the child, but I think there does come a point where the child's point of view um, would override the parent's point of view. And that can be challenging as well. And I suppose that there is a very specific need for good quality information that can try and bridge that gap and probably try and explain quite complex things to someone who hasn't completed their full education yet and that can be quite difficult and again I think as a GP the biggest challenge for me is time, it's being able to have a proper conversation which in my experience you know 20 minutes that you're often just getting into your stride with that long, that, that amount of time and 10 minutes is our standard appointment length. Whereas as, as children become a bit older, sometimes it can become difficult for them um, to see a doctor by themselves. Perhaps it's not something they're used to doing and they want to start doing themselves. And that can create a new dynamic that I think doctors have to be quite alert to. But of course, you always want to try and share information with parents where that's appropriate. And again, that's something that has to work out, I think, very much on an individual basis. So I think for me as a healthcare professional, it's about time and 
if I just had a bit more time for each patient, and uh, you know, I think life would be a lot easier for both me and for my patients. And I think that that's the kind of thing that often when we look at the provision of health services and things like that, it can seem quite empty, you know, where's the productivity within time? But the conversations that I think patients and doctors have together is one of the most valuable inputs that we have. And just being able to help someone find high-quality, reliable information online, or quite often young people are quite interested in internet um, availability of information or apps is the other thing as well. And trying to find things that can be useful rather than a hindrance or a waste of their time and efforts. It's a very valuable thing to do and it keeps people engaged with the, with the process of, I suppose, being looked after if they have a chronic illness in particular. Now, what you're both saying is that these challenges are large and important and they play straight into the question of caring uh, at all levels by the health system and by families. Um, now, it is unfortunately time for us to take the break and pay the rent, so this is what we're going to do now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Audrey Friedman and Dr. Margaret McCartney. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. How do you know if you're living with an addict? If you think you know all the recognizable signs, you probably don't. If you're listening to and reading from the so-called experts, you probably don't. You need to hear from a parent, just like yourself, who has been there and can tell you what it's like firsthand. Please listen to Afflicted by Addiction with Bradley DeHaven. Our program is heard every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It just might save your life or the life of someone you love. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Audrey Friedman and Dr. Margaret McCartney. Our topic is trustworthy, understandable, and useful information for family caregivers and patients. Now, let's talk about ways to overcome the information challenges experienced by family caregivers and patients. Margaret, 
starting with you first, please. In your article in the British Medical Journal, you criticise some types of information provided to patients as inaccurate, inconsistent and confusing. Please give us some examples and explain the confusion, the inaccuracy and the inconsistency. Margaret? Well, I have to say that I used other people's research rather than my own. So this was really, um, I'd looked online to find out what was the state of affairs with regard to how good the information that we give to patients and is it good enough or not. And the reason that I wrote the article was really reflecting my own frustrations with trying to find good quality information for patients. And I work in the National Health Service, which does spend a sizable amount of time, effort and money on communication and information strategy. Indeed, we have a chief knowledge officer within the NHS. So one of the things I looked at was just on PubMed, the kind of depository for medical research, about what did we know so far about um, information that's given to patients after standard procedures like hernia repairs or um, shockwave lipotripsy to treat kidney stones. So these are fairly standard procedures. They're, you know, something that um, is pretty much the same type of procedure, whether you have it done in Scotland or England or Ireland. So you would expect to have fairly similar information given out across the country. And the UK is a pretty small country compared to Canada. So you would think we would be able to have a degree of consistency. And what then some researchers had done was written to each hospital within the area asking them for the information that they gave to patients. And really they found it was very different indeed. So some information leaflets mentioned uncommon or rare complications. Other information leaflets didn't mention much about them at all. Some information leaflets said you could return to work in one week. Others said six weeks. So really quite a marked variation in the kind of information we gave to patients. So my question really arising for that was how can we know that these are reliable and based on evidence rather than eminence, rather than the opinion of someone who thinks that they know best. Because I think what patients really need is to know the facts about something rather than just someone's opinion or a kind of consensus agreement or something like that. What really do we know about this procedure and what kind of information do patients need to have in order to make informed consent? And my bottom line is I don't think we have it right yet within the NHS. We have a huge amount of effort, but not enough overarching communication between trusts within the hospitals who are creating the information. I think we could share things an awful lot better. I think we could peer review things an awful lot better. Instead of having 100 leaflets about one operation, let's just have one really, really, really great leaflet about it that we all use. So really pretty basic things. And I think that all these things now are actually possible because of the internet. We've got the facility to communicate quickly, to update things as instantly as we need to. And why don't we use that all a bit better? Thank you. Audrey. Some experts see trustworthiness, understandability and usefulness as a standard for information. What do you think about these as a standard for information that would address Margaret's concerns or some of them? And what would you want to add to the standard? Audrey. So first of all, I must say that I agree wholeheartedly with Dr. McCartney's comments and the challenges related to information, inconsistency, redundancy. So um, it's a challenge that we face and we work very hard to overcome, but it is something that is there. Uh, When developing uh, content or, or evaluating content for inclusion, 
um, in a collection that we develop, whether it's uh, in the library or for distribution in a clinic, um, we look for criteria for evaluating the quality of health information. So we have resource collection development policies, some criteria that guides our development or inclusion of existing resources. We look at, look at uh, credibility or trustworthiness. Was it developed using best evidence? Was there a medical advisory board or expert panel? Is there any bias or conflict of interest by the author? And, was, and we look at things like currency. So when was it written or published? And when was it reviewed, revised? Um, should be clearly available in the resource if we're outsourcing the material. Um, also relevance. Is it, is it relevant to the target audience? Is it generalizable to the setting or to the geographic location of the patient and family caregiver? And how accessible is it? And so um, uh, from an accessibility point of view, we, talk, we think we mean like from a plain language point of view, is it, is it organized and presented it in a way that the intended audience can, can understand it without using jargon, maybe written at a grade six level? Also looking at the images, are they easy, clear and easy to understand and do they bring added value to the document? I would also want to ensure that this tool is responding to what patients and family caregivers say they want and need. So I think doing a needs assessment with the attended audience and or having patients and family caregivers as part of the expert panel is essential with a person-centered care approach to patient education. Right. Um, the, sorry? Margaret, I'm going, sorry, Audrey, I'm going to just stop you there because I want to go on to something else and you're going to have an opportunity to say more about what needs to be done. But Margaret, in the medical world, as you very well know, there are things called clinical practice guidelines. Would these, do you think, make a useful model for guidelines for family caregivers and patients? What do you think? In terms of what kind of guidelines do you hold? In terms of giving people information which is useful to them, but in a fairly standardized format. Uh, that is to say, it's... It's as Audrey was describing, you're, you're creating a document which is intelligible, uh, which you can trust, which is going to be so useful. Like a standard which format of information they fit for. Yeah. Sorry, I'm and not so, sure. I mean, I think there is absolutely a need to have consistency in terms of how you give people information. I suppose the problem with guidelines as a whole is that guidelines are very often written for the majority and very often people are in a minority. So it can be very hard to get a guideline that fits that individual person. And I suppose I see in medicine, certainly in the UK, in a bit of a stranglehold to guidelines. We're told we must follow the guidelines at all times, but very often in guidelines push us into quite a binary position either a yes or a no response, whereas often people are in a bit of a maybe position. There's some elements of wanting to do one thing, but perhaps also not wanting to. And I suppose the, the problem with too much standardisation is that individuals don't always fit into those categories. And I think that's why um, whenever we issue information leaflets, you know, like you were saying, we, we would want to make sure that they were relevant to that, that geographical area, that particular hospital, that particular need, but we also have to be sure that they're relevant to that individual. Um, for example, we, we're in the UK, we, we now do bowel cancer screening, um, and that information leaflet goes out to everyone, but of course sometimes it goes out to people who've maybe got a terminal diagnosis with something else, and 
they get the information, they forget about the bowel cancer screening that they're told that they might want to have, and yet they're in the process of being in the terminal illness for another condition. And sometimes a family member will be quite concerned that that person is not getting an opportunity, or is, you know, should they or should they not have the screening? But really for them, it's irrelevant. It's not going to save their life. And that kind of thing can be very difficult because we've applied a guideline to an individual where it really wasn't applicable and actually can cause quite a lot of emotional upset. I think there are real dangers and just too much standardisation. Fair enough. Um, I suppose that comes back to the role of the, the doctor, the nurse, the specialist of having the time to explain broadly the challenges but also to look at how the information relates to the particular individual with all the aspects of that individual's situation. Now, Audrey, what you've both been describing is complex work. Who should do it? How should it be done? So that the information needs of family caregivers and patients um, are met and so that the information complies with whatever standards are going to be set so that it avoids wasteful duplication of effort. So a major challenge, of course, is how healthcare is organized within a given jurisdiction. So in Canada, healthcare is organized by the province. So much of the work in terms of uh, setting standards and guidance and quality can be done at the provincial level. So in the case of Cancer Care Ontario, um, can the Ontario Cancer Plan focuses on um, cancer control from the perspective of the patient and is driven by the need to ensure quality across the cancer system. So. Um, in my role as head of patient education, we have 14 regions and 14 regional leads um, responsible for patient education in each of those regions. Um, and we work with patients as part of our patient education committee, patients and family caregivers, to ensure the quality, um, consistency, and, and accessibility of resource uh, development, uh, not, but the resources themselves are developed at the local level or in the hospital level. Um, we also set guidance on how the patient education programs should be organized at the local level to ensure um, that the work is done well. So we have um, nine elements that we consider integral to having a good patient education program that includes the organization and structure, philosophy and mission, functions, facilities and equipment, finances, processes, leadership for quality and performance improvement, evaluation and resource and, and human resources. So those um, elements are integral to start the process of who is responsible. So we have those 14 regional leads that are responsible. Um, but I think that we need to maximize the use of technology to reach people beyond the walls of the hospital. And I think we need to develop programs and services to empower um, patients and family caregivers to be informed, discriminating, discriminating, and active consumers of health information. And I suppose also uh, that we reach out to them in a way that enables them to convey back to us um, what their information needs are and how well or otherwise the material that they're being um, given or uh, is being sent to them or they access via the technology, how useful that really is. And so that's a quality control issue. Yeah. Now, we once again are at the time for the break, so we'll take that now. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guests are Audrey Friedman and Dr. Margaret McCartney. 
You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life, goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Audrey Friedman and Dr. Margaret McCartney. Our topic is trustworthy, understandable, and useful information for family caregivers and patients. Now, I want you both to talk about the things that you as individuals would like to do and see done to improve ways for meeting the information needs of family caregivers and patients. So, Audrey, starting with you, what more would you like to do and see done through hospitals? I think we need to develop our patient um, and family caregiver education materials and other resources, tools with patients and family caregivers in order to truly partner with them and to understand what their informational needs are and are they meeting their needs. I think we need to more broad, broadly be uh, flexible, not just standardized pamphlets or leaflets, um, I, although I, I think we should have consistency in message. I think we need to know what the individual uh, patient or, or caregiver information preferences are, learning styles, and I think we need a toolkit of resources to respond to them as individual learners. Um, I think we really need to move to streaming videos, classes, searchable, uh, smart information on portals and apps, and use social media. Um, and this is a way to reach out to more people, uh, diverse populations, where they need the information and, and sometimes, you know, where they can't access us directly. Um, 
We need to develop and endorse resources that are coming from a trusted health care system, but we can't control what's out there. So we, I think we need to help family caregivers acquire the skills to be wise consumers of health information. Um, we also uh, need to market our services and programs better. Um, it's not a skill set that we have in the hospitals, and typically we m- may develop wonderful resources and tools, but we're not that great at getting the message out to the people that need it the most, so to primary care community, to the patients, and to the family caregivers. Right. Um, I think we need to ad- address the navigation challenges that patients and family caregivers face, and I think... Uh, you know, if we think of it as an inverted triangle, people could, all people could ve- benefit from a virtual navigation system with independent learners and a, a portal to reliable information. But then you need, a, you know, another layer with uh, highly trained or volunteer na- navigators or ca- ca- people who have been in a caregiver role to help those people that need extra help and to help them navigate the complex information. And for patients that are marginalized from the system and have complex information needs or complex disease or comorbidities, I think it would require a professional navigator or, for example, a nurse or social worker to ensure that they get the right information, education, and support as needed. Right. Margaret, what more would you like to see done by healthcare systems? Yes, I suppose there's two things. I mean, what, one main thing I think is just that there's a vast amount of absolute rubbish information out there. So just online, I mean, there's just anyone can write anything, and a lot of it is just absolute mints, basically, to use a good Scottish expression. So I would really like to see um, patients who want to be involved with their care and who are interested in knowing more about it thinking about ways to get better information and really to equip themselves with the kind of skills that doctors who are interested in evidence would want to know about as well. And there's lots of good resources you can do online. The Cochrane Library, for example, the website there, has a really good um, information course for people who are interested in the basics of evidence-based medicine. There's some really great books out there like Smart Health Choices, um, which is a fantastic book freely available online and which people can use as another book called Testing Treatments, again, freely available online, which helps people to make sense of what's good medicine and what's untested or bad medicine. I think the problem is that when you go online, there's just so much rot on there that you really want to have some skills to sort out what's good and what's bad in the world of, kind of merchandise and medicine, really. So that would be my, my number one thing, I think, just give people some skills to sort out the better from the worst. The second thing, though, I would really like to see is actually a bit of reversal of what Audrey's saying, which is I would like to see a lot, a lot less um, stuff, because at the moment I think our resources are sped, sped so thinly that we have got lots and lots of pretty poor quality information, whereas what I'd like to see is a smaller amount of information, but really high quality information that's been tested on real people, where real people have given their, um, their verdict on it and said what's good, what's bad, what needs to improve, that it's been tested so that we know it gives people better information, not just sort of mixed messages or poor information or poor statistics. So that we know we've got a kind of good resource, a really trustable, trusted, trustable and reliable resource of information we can give people. I think sometimes when we give more and more and more information out, a lot of the time it's not that helpful, it's repetitive, it's not any more than people could have got elsewhere, and we might be better off spending half an hour really reading something than getting lots of small bits of information that really don't add up to anything and don't actually increase our ability to make better choices about our health. Fair enough. Now, Audrey, 
What is your message for family caregivers and patients who want information to help them with their healthcare needs? Audrey? So I would, the first thing I would say is try to be a good advocate for yourself and for the person you are caring for. Try to find learning opportunities that suit your time, schedule, and location and interest. I think you should try and assess the quality of the information you come in contact with, whether it's paper-based or on the Internet. Um, I think the Internet is a particular challenge. Uh, I think you need to seek out health information specialists or patient educators at your local hospital, in person, or online. And you need to tell them what you want and what you need and be relentless. You really have to sometimes push the envelope to get the support and the help you need. Hopefully it's not too challenging, but I think you do have to not be unapologetic and and say what you want. Um, If you are able to, I would say try and join a patient and family caregiver advisory board in the locally or regionally or even nationally to bring your voice and your needs to the table to enhance um, what your personal needs, but also to enable change for, for um, patient and family caregivers um, throughout your jurisdiction. I also think you need to know that you're not alone, that there, are, there is support and there are really many quality resources and supports out there for you. So I would encourage you, I know it's challenging sometimes and sometimes you feel defeated and tired, but I think uh, it, it really is important for you to find somebody to help you um, and, and, um, and be relentless. Right. Margaret, what's your message for family caregivers and patients, people who want information to help them with their healthcare needs? Margaret? Yeah, I think, I think it's really difficult. I think it's really hard. Quite often, I think, um, people are finding it, you know, a struggle enough to just keep body and soul together. If you're looking after someone with a chronic illness, it can be really, really hard going. Um, as a GP, I mean, I hope that people who've got chronic illness would feel that we were a good point of contact and someone that could try and help, not just with the person, but also with their relative or loved one that they're trying to look after. Um, in the UK, we've got quite a lot of carer centres who really seek to try and make things a bit easier. Um, our social care sector is, in many places, filled with fantastic people, but under-resourced, um, and I think makes it very difficult to give people enough home care or enough support with care or respite care that they actually need. So I think it is incredibly difficult. Um, if you're looking for good information, I would hope that your GP in the UK would be a good starting port of call and the other ancillary services that surround general practice like um, social work or like in the carer centre would be able to help as well. I suppose my big um, concern in a lot of these situations is in the UK I hate to feel that people have to kind of fight in order to get the care that they should be having because I think the energy is a pretty precious thing when people are struggling with a chronic illness or living with a chronic illness and, and their loved ones and I, I would prefer to see their energy going into enjoying a good quality of life rather than feeling that they have to battle to get somewhere which must be a really um, awful thing. I think sometimes it's very hard to make decisions in medicine, it's very difficult to make decisions with long-term illnesses. Sometimes it's never clear what the right answer should be, sometimes only in retrospect and then not even, and I suppose looking after our mental health in these situations is really, really important, making sure that you're getting time to relax and time to time off duty, really, and decent amounts of sleep, basic things like rest, relaxation, seeing friends, doing things are really important in terms of quality of life. And I just wonder whether, you know, using all that energy to feel as though you've got to push for better services is necessarily 
always best placed because I think that a good society should be one that wants to look after people who are sick and vulnerable anyway. Right. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this important episode, and I want to say thank you to Audrey and Margaret for sharing with us your experience, your insights, and your advice. And I want to wish you, on behalf of everyone, um, every success in your work, because it matters. Um, What you have both been saying and emphasizing, I think, is that giving people the information, providing the information, uh, that people need to cope with their healthcare situations, whether of themselves or their family members, is is and should be a fundamental part of healthcare. And I come back perhaps to the particular point, and as a physician I may be biased, but I think that physicians and nurses and other healthcare professionals do have a responsibility here to help um, family caregivers and family members through the information barriers. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be Supporting Family Caregivers for ALS. Please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 